This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Episode 45 of the World Beyond War podcast. Today's guest has a pretty incredible background in the pursuit of peace. He's Edward Horgan, one-time commandant with the Irish Defense Forces, who served on United Nations peacekeeping missions in Cyprus and the Middle East, and now a tireless peace activist who works with many organizations, including Veterans for Peace Ireland, the Irish Peace and Neutrality Alliance, Shannon Watch, which is dedicated to calling out foreign military forces who abuse Ireland's neutrality at Shannon Airport in Limerick, and of course, World Beyond War, which is how I know Edward, because he serves on the board there. Edward's peace activities have gotten him into legal trouble a few times, most recently late last year, when he was forced through a trial for attempting to create an environment of peace at Shannon Airport. Edward, it's great to talk to you here today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Mark, and good to talk to you also. So please tell us um, everything, you know, start at the beginning about your recent court case. I do want to talk to you about everything you've done, but let's start with why were you in court recently? Well, almost six years ago, uh, two of us peace activists climbed over a fence at Shannon Airport. There were two U.S. Navy C-40 aircraft uh, on their way from the USA to the Middle East. They had parked overnight. They were being protected by both an Irish Defence Force patrol and by an Irish police patrol also. We went in in, in darkness and um, in spite of the very tight security, we managed to get right up to two aircraft. Uh, we also managed to write the words, danger, danger, do not fly, with a large red marker on one of the engines of one of the aircraft. Uh, before eventually uh, somebody woke up and uh, realized that, that uh, there were some intruders. As expected, we were arrested. Uh, it was largely a symbolic exercise from our point of view, highlighting the ongoing breach of Irish neutrality. Ireland is a neutral state, or claims to be a neutral state, and is therefore bound by international laws and neutrality. So if a belligerent like the United States lands in an Irish airport, in theory, the Irish government is supposed to arrest the aircraft and his crew and then turned them. Uh, clearly that never happens. Uh, 
over the last 20 years, over 3 million armed US troops have passed to Shannon Airport, mainly on their way to wars in the Middle East and to Europe and elsewhere also. Um, so it took almost six years for the trial to happen. Uh, this was partly, I believe, to discommode me and my colleague as much as possible. Um, the yes. idea being that uh, while we're before the courts, we have to uh, be bound to the peace and whatever. Um, so that's uh, the trial eventually went ahead, uh, literally uh, just three weeks ago on the 11th of January last. Um, the it went on for 10 days, so it was quite a dramatic trial. Um, the main charge against us was criminal damage to the aircraft, even though there was evidence before the court that the amount of damage was of zero euro uh, cost. Um, so the case had never had been before the court. Uh, it was a jury trial, and we were found not guilty on the um, charge of criminal damage. We should have been found guilty or not guilty on the other charge also of trespassing at Shannon Airport. Uh, but unusually, the jury found us guilty of the trespass charge, even though it was necessary, obviously, to go into the airport uh, in order to um, do the damage which we were allowed to do. Um, so, um, however, the judge um, did give us what's known as the benefit of the Probation Act. So in theory, uh, uh, the, a criminal charge won't be registered against us. We had to make a 5,000 euro donation to charity, which is uh, almost unheard of from a point of view of the amount. So clearly the message being given by the state was peace activists should not challenge the Irish state or the US state. They should be allowed to do what they like. But clearly, uh, we believed our action was fully justified. Uh, this would have been the sixth time, in fact, I had been before the courts uh, mm. as a Port of Shannon Airport. On all the previous occasions, I had been found not guilty. On one of those occasions, three of us had tried to arrest former US President George W. Bush at Shannon yeah. Airport. Um, and that was just one of the previous cases. So I'm, I suppose, uh, quite well known to the police uh, at Shannon <laughs> yeah. Airport uh, and to the Irish state. I also took the Irish government um, in a High Court constitutional case in 2003 over US military use of Shannon Airport. And while I lost part of the case, the judge did find that the Irish government were in breach of international laws and neutrality by so doing. So that's roughly uh, my legal background in recent times. Quite challenging from my point of view, but at the same time, uh, I have little doubt it was fully justified. Yes, and I believe effective because by doing this act of civil resistance and putting yourselves out in this way, you have let the world know about the extent of illegal military use of a neutral country's airport. I mean, that you are, you're calling attention to a lie that's been blatantly out there silently and it's no longer silent. I mean, I, I feel great about the results of the work you get. I wonder how you feel about the sacrifices and the, the suffering that it causes you, of course, and that doesn't compare to the suffering and sacrifices of victims of war. But do you feel satisfied with the effect of this act of civil resistance? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, and yes, it has been of huge inconvenience as it happens during the trial last month. My wife was quite ill and was actually hospitalized. Mm. So I had that stress to worry about as well. But I've no doubt that uh, what I have been doing, exposing these lies and exposing Irish complicity in the wars in the Middle East. Uh, and clearly it's my intention to continue in whatever way. Um, it's also a matter of the rule of law. I have a great respect for the rule of law. And in several of my trials, the judges have been emphasizing the fact that I, as, a, as an individual, have no have no right to take the law into my own hands. And mm. my response is usually, I wasn't taking the law into my own hands. I was just asking the state and the police forces and the justice system to apply the rule of law properly. And all my actions were geared from that point of view. But yes, uh, it is um, at, at the very least inconvenient. But as you say, compared to what's happening in the, in the Middle East and now in Ukraine. Uh, and again, the, what the Russians are doing in Ukraine is almost a carbon copy of what the US and NATO were doing in Afghanistan, Iraq, mm -hmm. Syria, Libya, um, Yemen especially, which is ongoing. And the difficulties caused in these countries have been tremendous. Um, we don't know how many people have been killed across the Middle East. My estimate is that it's it's many million. But I'm also involved in a project called Naming the Children. And our estimate on that, in fact, are that since the first Gulf War in 91, up to one million children have died due to war-related mm. reasons uh, across the Middle East, in which the US and NATO um, played a major role. And Ireland is complicit in the deaths of this these one million children. And, that I find uh, horrendous, both from a personal point of view and from an Irish point of view. Yeah, um, naming the children, of course, I'll put the link to that website in the show notes. It's a very um, emotionally disturbing website because you get right to the heart of the issue, as you say, you know, yes. mm -hmm. war kills children in the millions. And um, by putting faces there, it's it's pretty shocking and disturbing. Um, I should say, by the way, that you and I are speaking roughly on the one year um, anniversary of the beginning of a, what looks to me like World War Three in Central yeah. Europe, also known as the um, Ukraine-Russia War. Um, and so many more children need to be named in the past year. Um, let I. I would like to, you know, I'm, I hope that everybody who listens to this w will take the time to look at naming the children. And at this moment, Edward, I'd, you know, I do want to get back to your trial and and topics relating to Ireland, which is a, of a you know special interest probably to me and many listeners. But I also want to talk just about the world and um, your activities. Why are you the one? who has taken on the guilt of, you know, the war machine in Ireland. Why, why are you, why do you feel called to do this? And, and what is your background? I, and, uh, you know, I alluded to what seems like a pretty incredible background. So I don't even know if it's possible to start at the beginning and, and capture all of it, but who are you and why do you do what you do? 
uh, I suppose I can start by summarising. Uh, I grew up on a small farm uh, in the southwest of Ireland, uh, looking for a job when I finished high school. Uh, I applied to join the Army Cadet School, the Irish Military Academy. I was very surprised that I was successful and uh, I became an officer in the Irish Defence Forces. Uh, I joined initially in 1963 and served for 22 and a half years, reaching the rank of Commandant, which is the equivalent of Major than most other armies. And then I took early retirement. But one of the things I achieved uh, or experienced um, early in my career, I served several times as, on UN peacekeeping missions. Um, so I experienced wars in particular at first hand, particularly the Yom Kippur War. Um, I, I had been serving in Cyprus at the time with uh, an Irish battalion. I was battalion logistics officer. And overnight, we got an order from uh, our government to move our battalion into the middle of the Sinai Desert, uh, just as the mm. Yom Kippur War was coming to a close. Um, saw the bodies lying on the desert. Um, and um, I suppose part of what I'm doing now, I would say, is the responsibility of knowledge. Um, I have more knowledge than most of war situations. I've also worked uh, as a civilian in the meantime, observing elections around the world, mainly in post-conflict situations, including in uh, places like the Congo, Tunisia, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, and other places in Africa, as well as places like East Timor, um, Armenia. Uh, I've also observed elections in fairly recent years in both Russia and Ukraine, as well as in Bosnia. So all this knowledge oh, wow. uh, puts yeah. a responsibility on me to do something about what I know. Well, um, absolutely agree. I'd like to go back to the beginning of that story. So you sure. you said that you started in a small farm. Um, what was your attitude about joining the military? And what were you a did you have a different attitude about what it means to be in a military occupation then than you do now? Uh, not really. In fact, I joined partly because. Ireland had fairly recently become a member of the United Nations. We only joined United, or were allowed to join the UN in 1955 for various diplomatic reasons. Uh, and Irish troops had been serving in the Congo. Um, and in one incident, um, nine Irish troops were killed in an ambush in the Congo. Uh, and um, I, I would have been uh, in my late teens at that point. So the idea of Irish soldiers working for peace, international peace, sounded quite romantic, but also quite important from my point of mm. view. So that yeah. would have been one of the reasons I actually decided to join the military. You know, as as the name of the organization, Veterans for Peace, that global sure. organization and all the different branches indicates there's absolutely nothing unusual about people being military veterans or, or military personnel and being quite seriously devoted to peace. Um, I wonder if to some extent the, the unique position of Ireland in the world is what made, made it possible to feel that being part of a military force was a peacekeeping mission. Would you have felt the same way if you were an American or a Brit? Uh, it's quite different in the Irish context because uh, Irish neutrality uh, is very important to the Irish people. Um, 
obviously in recent times, much less important to the Irish government. But the Irish government uh, is not at yeah. one will with the Irish people. Uh, Irish neutrality is a very positive neutrality. Throughout the Second World War, it would have been seen more as a negative neutrality. For uh, Ireland decided to stay neutral for various right. historical reasons. But since we joined the UN, our neutrality has become very positive. We have been promoting not only international peace, but also justice and independence for colonized countries uh, because of our own colonized experience. Uh, and that also made us uh, very neutral in how we did our peacekeeping uh, and very proactive also. Um, in those yeah. early years, in, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, um, only neutral countries were normally allowed to be the active or operational part of UN peacekeeping. Uh, ah, I NATO see. countries and Warsaw Pact countries uh, might have been allowed to provide the logistics, but they were never allowed to uh, get actively involved because they had too many vested interests. I this see. has now been much abused yeah. in the meantime um, by the most powerful countries. Uh, so that neutrality, mm. that positive active neutrality, has been extremely important from an Irish context. Very interesting. So I see then that your your actions at Shannon Airport uh, on behalf of neutrality really are very deeply rooted. There's a long there there's a long tradition of neutrality, and here in the United States, where we're never neutral, we're usually the ones in the war. Um, very alien to me to imagine. To how good it might feel to be in a country that at least proclaims neutrality. Um, and, and of course, the reality also is that this, uh, the US at the moment is trying to remove neutrality from as many countries as possible. Yes, the only reason that, yeah. the US is using China Airport, they don't need to use it. They have plenty of bases and other places to land as part from Ireland mm. in China Airport to destroy Irish neutrality. It's also really? it's yeah. important maybe to point out, as, as, as most Americans um, may have forgotten, in fact, uh, that the U.S. has a history of neutrality itself. It's remained neutral during World War, most of World War One, and right. it's it's remained neutral in World War Two until the first it was attacked years. itself by yeah. Japan and Germany. So, uh, right. uh, so there's a short memory from that point of view uh, about U.S. neutrality. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, right now, as, as we witness the horror of the one-year-old Russia-Ukraine war, you know, those of us who have managed to keep our sane brains yeah. and, and realize that this war is a disaster that's only getting worse are calling for a ceasefire, are calling for the the concept of neutrality and and peacekeeping and diplomacy these things seem to be absolutely missing in the world today and you know when you say that I, when you talk about the split between irish people's wish to remain a neutral force in the world and the irish government which may have different motivations makes me think of the scandinavian nations as well um one really shocking thing that's happened in the last year is that countries such as Sweden that have seemed to have the same the same cherished neutrality, you know, that, yes. or tradition of of playing a peacekeeping role in the world, are are 
getting in line with um, with one side of a world war. And have you witnessed that as well, being much closer to Europe? Very much I, so. Yeah. And I, I would have worked closely, in fact, with, with Finnish troops, Swedish troops, Austrian troops uh, in places like Cyprus and the Middle East. In fact, as it happens, uh, there were four neutral battalions in Cyprus serving in 1973, um, uh, and all four battalions um, one from Austria, one from Finland, one from Sweden, and one from Ireland were transferred at very short notice into the Sinai Desert in between the Israeli and the Egyptian forces. Uh, and uh, so there, there would have been a close camaraderie and cooperation between those four neutral states in particular. Um, so it's hugely disappointing uh, for me and many others, the Sweden in particular, and Finland also have now quite easily abandoned their neutrality and there's pressure on Austria and now pressure on Ireland also to do likewise. In reality, um, Ireland already abandoned its neutrality um, huh. in disregard of the, what the Irish people want the government to do. Is there a pattern between what's happening in Sweden and Finland and Ireland? Is, is there, I mean, and, and is this pattern have to do with basically war profiteering and, and corrupting government, you know, influ buying influence in government? Is that the pattern that's making neutrality? It, it, it is war for profiteering. Um, it's, uh, I believe that uh, behind the scenes, there are threats being made uh, against governments. Uh, I have reason to believe that in particularly uh, prior to the Iraq war starting in 2003, um, threats may well have been made behind the scenes about um, direct in investment in Ireland from the US, uh, which is of major importance being threatened or laws being brought in in the States to, um, to reduce that. So um, there is also issues of corruption involved, but again, it's, it's very hard to prove. There is no logical reason and it's of no benefit to the Irish economy, in fact, to allow US troops to Shannon Airport. Uh, Shannon Airport makes a very small profit on the troops going through, um, but it also costs the Irish taxpayer. Um, since 2001 in particular, uh, in the region of 100 million euro um, in waived air traffic control fees and extra security. So hmm. the Irish tax taxpayer is funding the wars in the Middle East and now the wars in, in Europe as well. You know, it, it definitely hits home when you say that these military flights don't need to use Shannon Airport, but that they are doing so really to make Ireland complicit. <laughs> you know, it's a, it sort of sounds to me like how when you want to join the mafia, you are asked to commit a crime so that you are complicit. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very, Absolutely. Obviously a very, very simplistic idea of the mafia, um, mm -hmm. but not, I don't think, a simplistic idea of how war creates a death spiral. The entry into what I'm calling, you know, the early stages of World War III seems to be, oh, let's help Ukraine a little bit. Okay, now we need to help Ukraine more. Now we need to help Ukraine more. But it seems to me the only thing we're helping Ukraine do is die because this war is destroying Ukraine. And the only thing that would help Ukraine is actually a, a peace negotiation. And this, this brings us back to the fact that, as you're saying, neutrality is shrinking around the world. 
I mean, that's sort of the, that's the one sentence I'm getting from what you're saying, that neutrality is shrinking around the world. Absolutely. And it's almost been people who are being neutral are being labeled as being almost traitors at the moment Absolutely. from a oh. European point of view. It's also yeah. quite important. You mentioned there the the mafia element. And unfortunately, it's quite an accurate analogy. Uh, what we are seeing is a virtual criminal protection racket uh, at global level. Uh, yes. And NATO being used as the enforcers. Uh, and the issue of threats is also very real. I have little doubt, in fact, this was the US that coordinated and partly carried out the bombing of the, the two gas pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and 2. Um, yes. And, uh, there is now little doubt, in fact, that that was well, the case. That, that was virtually an act of war, an act of economic war, at least, against Germany, a member of NATO. And the fact that Germany has been forced to go along with that and to ignore its own national interests. Let's take a moment to um, talk about, and you know, one thing I want to mention, of course, these podcasts are meant to be, these, these are not just meant to be listened to in February, 2023. So I want to provide mm-hmm. sort of historical markers. Um, let's talk about the news story that you just mentioned. Um, the great journalist Seymour Hirsch, who yes. uh, one of the greatest anti-war journalists of, of our lifetimes, um, he uncovered the My Lai massacre in Vietnam right. and also um, wrote the article in The New Yorker that exposed the Abu Ghraib um, torture of Iraqis by American personnel in Iraq, um, is now um, quoting sources that the United States was directly involved in blowing up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which, and of course, many of us have always seen the Russia-Ukraine war as a proxy war over fossil fuel, over control of the fossil fuel economy, um, Nord Stream 2 being the the catalyst for the war. So we've been watching Nord Stream 2 for a long time. The fact that Seymour Hirsch says that he has evidence um, has not been has not resulted in any news stories in the United States. In fact, it's been completely ignored. Um, I haven't seen it in the New York Times. I haven't seen it in Washington Post. I don't see it on CNN. So the, the, just as neutrality seems to be shrinking, journalism seems to be shrinking. <laughs> I mean, how, how is it possible? Now, I mean, you say that it's undeniable that or the, you know the evidence is strong. Yeah. I have no idea. You're much closer to military matters and much closer to Europe, being in Europe, yes. than I am. I don't know if it's true or not. What I do know is that when Seymour Hirsch publishes a story about war crimes, mm-hmm. that deserves coverage, and it's not getting coverage. Um, and militarily, economically, only a very limited number of countries had the ability to do this, uh, to blow up those two pipelines. Russia could not have, well, first of all, Russia well, would, would yeah. be most unlikely to blow up its own pipelines. And yeah, that's secondly, a ridiculous idea, yeah. And secondly, uh, that area of the um, North Sea or the, um, uh, is very carefully patrolled in the middle of the Ukraine war by NATO on an hourly, even minute by minute basis. There is no way could, you know, Russian specialist forces come in and plant explosives without being caught. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, 
both militarily and economically, it made no sense for anybody other than the US to, to engineer um, this act of war, basically. I find it very credible as well. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I think you and I and every anti-war activist has a different focus. I, I don't find it even necessary for me to say at this point that I know it's true. All I know <laughs> is that this story needs to be heard. Um, and, and I believe it probably is true because I do think that um, the only explanation for the entire, for United States and Russia to go to this level of war is the competition over fossil fuels. And clearly that's been at the core of this war. <sighs> Not only are neutrality being degraded and international peace being degraded, but the very concept of truth is being grossly yes. degraded as well. Uh, yes, and, yes. And of course, even more important, the rule of law at all levels, but particularly at international level. International law is always inadequate and needs to be hugely improved, but the bits that are there are being grossly abused also. Absolutely. Well, you know, this this is a good moment for me to try to broaden our conversation, you know, away from the horrifying news of the day and news of the year. Um, I sort of want to refocus a little. Um, now, our listeners can't see this, but I can this this impressive bookshelf behind you. I'm kind of curious about the the philosophical ideas that must be underlying your work especially in terms of how a better world can be possible. And I know the answers are in some of those books behind you. Some of them I can even yeah. make out the titles. But yeah, yeah. What, are, what is your positive hope for the world? Starting at the point where we are now, yeah. what can we believe in? What, what are we working towards from a philosophical point of view? Yeah, I suppose uh, I sometimes describe myself as an incurable optimist. And, uh, <laughs> me too, me too. Uh, it can be difficult to maintain one's optimism at a time like this. And at times I do get quite pessimistic also. Uh, but doing what's right because it's right is part of, uh, I suppose, the background I would have picked up from my parents. Uh, and I would have learned as I went along as well. Um, so it's uh, the idea of killing people. Um, uh, in any context, even from a point of view of capital punishment, the European Union has banned capital punishment uh, on all its member states. You cannot be a member of the European Union uh, if your country has capital punishment on its statute mm -hmm. books. Yet the European Union member states have actively participated in capital punishment in Iraq, Libya, Syria, and elsewhere. Yes, it's, yes. it's fine to capitally kill, kill people in wars, um, at the same time, claiming to ban capital punishment. Uh, and clearly, um, from a philosophical point of view, um, doing what's right, I think uh, those of us who would be important would say either as Christians or Jewish or Muslim um, have certain, quite similar codes of morality about killing, about stealing, about uh, justice or whatever. Uh, and those codes of morality should apply not only at personal level, but at national level and at international level. I've also completed a PhD on international peace. I set out um, about 10 years ago to 
prove how the UN could be reformed. That was the basis mm. of my PhD. I spent eight years trying to prove how the UN could be reformed. I very okay. reluctantly concluded that it is beyond reform, in fact. Uh, uh, well, was, I mean... It was designed to fail. Really? Uh, that it, it was set up in such a way mainly by the US, backed up by Britain uh, and France to some extent, um, giving the US uh, almost a stranglehold over the global economy. Russia at the time, the, or the USSR, went along for different reasons. China at the time wasn't even allowed. Uh, uh, and communist China only became a member right. of the UN, I think, in 1971. So. Right. Um, but the, the veto in particular, um, the fact that all five of the permanent members of the UN Security Council have a veto over any change in the UN structure and or any change in the veto, that places yeah. those five above and beyond the control of the UN. Uh, right. And that's why the US and NATO can do what they like around the world. Now Russia is doing the same. And in theory, China could also do the same. Well, you know, one thing that I'm getting from what you, from your critique of of the UN's basic structure is that you are somebody who takes who has taken the idea of the United Nations very seriously because Absolutely. you know what what you say. Many, at least here in the United States, where the UN is not spoken of with much respect, even though sure. it's mm-hmm. right here in my own city. Um, what you say might many people would say, of course, the UN is, you know, is powerless. We want the United States to have all the power. That's why, yes. you know, that's what it's all about is the United States is the power. The UN is the, is, is the organization we kick around. And, and I guess here in the United States, people are, are proud of that. So to, and I also, I, I think I probably have very similar sensibility to you. And I have also thought about the UN very seriously in terms of how it can help the world, and and um, and that even though that idea is considered laughable, so I I, I do agree that you're an incurable optimist to, to believe in the mission of the UN, even though it clearly hasn't. And I and many other peacekeepers restore lives on several occasions. Uh, on my 21st birthday, I came under heavy machine gun fire in Cyprus and was and was almost killed, in fact. Uh, and at that stage, I decided, hey, my life is going to be short. I made make the best use of it. Really? Uh, on another occasion in the Sinai, in fact, I I was in a, a jeep. We drove over a live anti-tank mine. Fortunately, it was in soft sand, and we tossed it to one side. Oh, uh, wow. A friend of mine, another army commandant, had a similar experience in Beirut. A couple of years later, his mine went off, killing all five of them who were in their jeep. Uh, and 88 Irish soldiers have died on UN peacekeeping missions. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, it was a huge disappointment for me, in fact, to conclude that the UN that I work with and risk my oh, life yeah. is, um, is beyond reform and may actually need to be walked away from and something better set up. Um, but wow. it was a difficult conclusion. What a what a statement. And, and yeah, of course, I mean, when I think about the situations you've been in as a U- member of a UN peacekeeping force, of course you you take it 
very seriously with your entire life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I also want, by the way, you mentioned Cyprus. We, we cool. had an earlier episode, this was a few years ago, where we talked to a young artist from Cyprus. Um, yes. And yeah, so I, I, you know, that's not a conflict that we hear much about, you know, in my part of the world. But, but I do understand that, 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 that you know, the, you, you must have, you, you've now mentioned the Yom Kippur War. And I should also, you know, I like to just always put sort of labels on this. We're talking about the 1973 war between Egypt and Israel um, and the Cyprus War. So I'm curious, were either of these events or other, you know, cataclysms that you've lived through, were these moments where you're, your life's philosophy about peace changed or grew or was it always there and and just you've been nourishing it you know have you have you had turning I, points in your ideas about how the world I think it was always there uh, and it was definitely nourished by experiences in fact uh, I was been quite critical I, I did a, a very deep research into UN peacekeeping missions and my conclusions had been that in many cases, the UN peacekeeping missions were a failure, either because they dragged on too long, like Cyprus. The Cyprus conference has been going on since, I think, 1960. It is still right. not resolved. Um, one of the few successful missions, in fact, was the Sinai mission, the, the UNF2 mission in Sinai in 1973. That did succeed in gradually handing back to Sinai uh, from Israeli occupation to to fully controlled by Egypt. However, that's one of the exceptions. Many of the right. other uh, peacekeeping missions, including Lebanon, including the Golan Heights, uh, have actually been a failure in not resolving or creating peace. What you're talking about in 1973, it took five years, but this. in 1978, the, the famous Camp David agreements, which... And I don't know how you feel about it. In my opinion, that's the one of the last times I can remember a U.S. president doing something really great. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Jimmy Carter. Yes. Um, but um, in 1978, the result of the, of the 1973 to 1978 peacekeeping status quo was a historic peace treaty that yes. even mm -hmm. today is still in effect. As war rages all over the world, at least yes, that mm -hmm. one peace treaty has remained intact. In fact, uh, I'm a very big fan of Jimmy Carter. I've, wow. I've worked with the Carter Center on four occasions. Uh, oh, nice. I have met both Jimmy and Roslyn uh, on one occasion each. Uh, I've worked with them in Ghana, in uh, Tunisia, in the Congo, and in Nepal. But he's starting to hear at the moment that he's probably in his last couple of weeks or months. Uh, yes, uh, you know, again, bringing this up to current events here in February 2023, Jimmy Carter is in hospice. And, right. you know, I am glad to hear this. And I, I want to say that as, as a peace activist and a member of the World Beyond War community, and, you know, whenever you, whenever you express admiration for a United States president, it's a risky proposition. But, Absolutely. I, but I agree with you. That's not to say that Jimmy Carter... Um, cured the United States of the sickness of corrupt capitalism and imperialism, but he sure did try. Yes, I don't think he succeeded, but he sure did try. And I've read several of his books, um, including his White House Diary, which yes. is a very thick book. And, and you see how he suffered yes. <laughs> through those years as president. Wasn't an easy time for him. He, 
I think it's undeniable that this was a president who actually set out to improve the United States's foreign policy bullying problem. And um, in the end, unfortunately, was not successful. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean he, he should be condemned for trying, I think. Absolutely. And he has done a lot of good in other countries, as I've experienced yeah. very directly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. It is inspiring to hear that through all of these years of UN peacekeeping forces, um, Irish defense forces, you've held on to your, your basic core belief, I guess, in life, life aff affirmation of life, I guess. Um, yeah, I think very much so. And, uh, and I, as I mentioned earlier on, the responsibility of knowledge can be a heavy burden to bear. Uh, I know the wrongdoing that is going on across the world, including uh, on a lesser scale in Ireland. And I feel compelled to do something about it. I have to say, I sleep reasonably well at night because of what I do, peacekeeping or uh, you know, as a peace activist. Uh, it, yes. It would be a burden on my conscience if I didn't do what I'm doing. Um, and clearly, I don't intend to give up anytime soon. Do you think a world without nations is possible? Uh, yes, and I think the a lot of the problems uh, that are occurring across the world over the last several centuries have been caused by the concept of a nation state, uh, yes. which is to a significant degree a bogus concept because they are almost uh, inevitably formed on myths of pure races. Here in Ireland, you know, in particular, we have nationalists who believe that only Irish people should be in Ireland. Uh, they are opposed right. to refugees coming in, um, forgetting that as recently as 10,000 years ago, there was nobody living in Ireland because it was covered in ice. Mm, uh, right. <laughs> and yeah, the idea that land should... From somewhere yeah. else. And right. the Irish especially uh, have traveled all over the world, have immigrated to every every country in the world. We have a huge diaspora. Um, That's so for that, sure. Uh, I would like to explore a little more about this uh, incurable optimism. and And one thing I'd like to point to um, I should say that I very much appreciated visiting Ireland for the World Beyond War Conference in 2019. I learned a lot about Irish history at the time. I, I actually listened to many, many, many hours of podcasts of, uh, about Irish history, and I was really fascinated with the way the Irish independence movement, I believe between 1916 and 1920, had a real breakthrough. And that breakthrough, and of, of course, I'm here I am talking to you who knows sure. about this far, far more than I do. So I'm sort of asking if I have this right. The breakthrough was an electoral victory that allowed um, the Irish members of parliament to, to resign from the British parliament and form a new nation. And yes. it seems to be a remarkable, brilliant, and yet quietly executed peaceful revolution. Uh, yes. They actually achieved independence peacefully. Uh, relatively peacefully, I would say. Unfortunately, we Irish also have a history of violence. Um, <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, partly, I, I suppose, imposed on us 
by colonization and, ab and abuses by the British Empire. Uh, but we also yeah. participated in the British Empire as one of the abusers. And That's even true. our even our 1916 rising uh, killed a lot of innocent people, including children. Uh, and what became a turning point, in fact, in 1916 was the decision by the British government to execute the leaders. Right. And that actually became totally counterproductive from a British point of view. And then that led to the elections, I think, in 1918. Uh, right. Uh, but there was uh, a fairly violent um, war of independence, followed by an even more violent um, civil war in 1921-22. Yes. Um, and yes. that history, in fact, as it happens, we are now commemorating some atrocities carried out by the newly formed Irish state against the Republicans they were fighting against. Um, hmm. and, right, right. And and in the meantime, there had been several um, bouts of violence in the meantime by the IRA in the North of Ireland and partly in the Republic. So that um, we're not as peaceful as um, we like to say at times. Yeah. Although um, now with the peace in Northern Ireland, we've learned a huge amount from that. Um, and mm -hmm. how to create peace uh, after conflict is extremely important. And the lessons we have learned are also applicable for many other countries. Yes. I mean, it's it, it's such a fascinating and and apparently contradictory history, because, yes, it, it, the there is definitely this tradition of violence. And as you say, you know, naming the children would would have True. to include naming many children um killed in this conflict at the same time the fact that there was a peaceful revolution or a yes. peaceful change of of governance and in the fact that democracy yeah democracy in ireland took root very firmly yeah. uh and that's unusual in fact uh across the world particularly after independence especially in africa but not just in africa even other countries in europe uh, that democracy took root very quickly and very solidly in Ireland, and thankfully has largely um, maintained our democratic traditions. Yes, that, that's a great way to put it. And you're, you're really, you know, providing a lot of perspective that helps me understand things that I've known about. And that, that really makes a lot of sense. I guess the reason I'm bringing up what I see as this miracle that happened in 1918, and yes. I am mm -hmm. focusing on 1918, when yes. Ireland actually voted to become independent, they didn't. Nobody said to Ireland, "You're allowed to vote yes. to become independent." England certainly <laughs> didn't say that. <laughs> they yeah. just did it. So it makes me believe, being another incurable optimist, that a, a people who resolvedly desires peace can actually come together to create a peaceful revolution. And, you know, the key word there is peaceful. And that is what I wish for in the United States and in every country in Europe and in, you know, really every country in the world is that the people will realize that we have the power to disable yes. these corrupt things that pretend to be our governments, but actually just steal from us and abuse us. Um, 
I just wanted to throw that out there. And that's kind of getting, you know, because this is this is my podcast. I get to, to sure, share sure. my dreams. That's my and, dream. What do you think? And I fully agree that the importance of democracy is huge. And people give out about democracy. Uh, but it's not democracy that's at fault. It's the lack of it and the abuses of democracy. Yeah. Not just in Ireland, but in the United States in particular. What we are seeing now, in fact, is... Not so much democracy, but a form of oligarchy, kleptocracy, uh, yes. and gross abuses of democracy. I was you know, very much a Democrat, uh, but I also, and I've actually lectured on, on democracy and constitutionality uh, mm-hmm. you know, to students at the University of Limerick. So it's, uh, there's a lot more we need to do to improve our democracy, not just in the US, but also in Ireland and Europe. We now see the, our European Union, of which Ireland is a member, becoming more and more autocratic, um, more and more uh, promoting war. Um, of the European Union countries now, in fact, uh, the vast majority of the members of the European Union are now members of NATO and are mm. very actively supporting um, the war in Ukraine. Uh, even Ireland has been. Uh, in in recent times providing training for the Ukrainian military instead of promoting peace as we should as a neutral country. Yes. Um, Tough time to be an incurable optimist right now. It is actually, but uh, (laughs) I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. I I keep hoping. I keep hoping for our 1918. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. One last question. You've, You've been, you know, many people at World Beyond War, like me, World Beyond War has been, you know, really the center of our connecting with other anti-war activists. You're a different story. You've you've been involved in so many, you know, really powerful organizations, including the United Nations. Um, What does World Beyond War represent in, in terms of your overall work? You know, how does this fit into your, this organization? I think it, it fits in quite well because the um, World Beyond War is trying to do what appears to be impossible. And my yes. own my own belief is uh, we need to be trying to do what appears to be impossible, otherwise we'll never know what is possible. Um, and the, uh, the concept of World Beyond War will be contradicted very vocally by very many people. How could we possibly get on without war? The reality is, uh, war is about or in the process of destroying humanity, destroying right. the planet. Uh, we cannot continue to survive when war is rampant, and it is now more rampant than it ever has been. And the catastrophic risks of nuclear war and even even sub-nuclear war, um, the damage being done to the environment by militarization uh, is colossal and is being denied. Um, so it's uh, what World Beyond War is trying to do um, is not impossible, but it's close to being impossible. Um, <laughs> and yet we must succeed in getting to the mind frame where it will be seen as being the solution to the problems rather than the cause. Well, Edward, um, you you have had an, a really inspiring life and I especially admire your focus you you you're never off message you seem extremely intent on putting everything you have in your life into helping solve this problem and that's really inspiring as i mentioned earlier on uh, all the experience 
puts the responsibility of knowledge on me. And, and, and I feel uh, yeah. it's partly what motivates me, but only partly. It was, um, <laughs> like, as you said, you can sleep well at night. Absolutely. Yes. I've also gained and benefited from uh, being active with Border Beyond War and with the other various organizations. So even though I'm now almost 78 years of age, I'm still very much learning on a daily basis. And uh, I don't yeah. intend to hopefully stop <laughs> learning anytime soon. Same here. And I think a lot of people will learn from, from what we just talked about here today. So great. yes, great to talk to you. Okay, okay. now lovely to talk to you. Going. Yep. And yep. peace with you. <laughs> much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.